Hey guys, I'm going to try to make this brief, um, but I just wanted to thank everybody who has watched us live on Twitch, who has downloaded the episodes on Apple and Spotify, who has subscribed to our YouTube channel and followed us on Instagram and just uh, engaged with us um, over the past year. I am super pumped. This is our hundredth episode and it's a great one. It's um, Chris Caffrey and Al Petrelli um, from Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And it's perfect because it's right around the holidays, obviously. Um, and, uh, and it just means a lot that they came on, uh, to do this with us and we had a blast with them. True rock stars, absolute legends. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, thank you everybody for sticking with us all this time. Um, you know, I decided to do dystopia tonight because, um, I couldn't tour and I needed something to keep me sane. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice if I got to talk to everybody I loved and respected and admired, um and uh so far so good uh so between musicians cartoonists scientists authors doctors uh you know did i say comedians uh actors you know everybody uh it's been it's been a lot of fun and we made a lot of good friendships along the way and i hope to make a lot more and um tom can't be here um because he's uh he's gigging i think right now and it's also two o'clock in the morning. So, um, yeah, uh, I just, again, just wanted to thank you. Uh, and I hope you enjoy the show and I hope you'll stick with us for the next hundred peace. Tonight. What's up, guys? How's it going, man? How you guys doing? It's good, brother. Good. How are you, Chris? How are you? I'm good. I've I actually I just saw Al ex the, for the last time in person exactly a week and two days ago, and then we headed our way, and and he he stayed where they were. So, but every day for the two two and a half weeks, I saw Al every day, and all of a sudden he's gone. So this was pretty rare for me to, to see Al during the tour and be talking at the same time, because a lot of times we're both on stage at different places, or he's yeah. in a time zone. And so this is this is probably in the, in the 22 years of touring, besides the tours we do together, the only time I've had time with Al, technically, on a tour. So this is pretty cool. Well, then, you know what? I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to let you guys just talk. That's There you go. <laughs> yeah, but we would start talking about fucking Italian food. So, <laughs> Is that your road food of choice? Well, not. Well, Al, it was when we were on the road with Sabotage, we would get to places and you would have a choice of, you know, what you wanted to do for food or catering. And we would see the list and, and Al would walk in. And if there was any kind of kitchen in these venues, he's like, well, can we just replace this catering list with, a shopping list. So you would come back with tomatoes and pork and pasta and we'd all nice. sit there waiting for Al to finish cooking. So Oh my God. That's yeah, gotta be the fucking best. At all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're gonna be a control freak about anything, if it's about food, I wish I had that. I'm always eating garbage when I'm on the road. I need an owl with me to be cooking <laughs> all the time. That'd be great. Is there well, like listen again? Thanks so much for having Chris and I on tonight. I hope everybody back home is healthy and safe and doing the best you guys can right now. And uh, definitely different world we live in, but uh, at least we're living again. Yeah, man, I completely agree. How have you guys been holding up during the pandemic and stuff like that? Did you guys find it, like, you know, as frustrating as everybody else did as performers? Were you eager to get back out there and, you know, start making music and stuff again? Or did you find the transition to online stuff pretty easy? Well, I spent years and years and years and years and years online. So when the COVID thing started, I let the rest of the world take over that. And I kind of took a little bit of a time off. I mean, I'd been touring straight for 35 years. Not that I didn't not want to play, but I got to do a few things I never got to do before to spend some holidays at home. We had the pay-per-view live stream last year, which for me was like a really good thing mentally to get back with everybody. And, you know, TSO was almost like we were going to rehearse for a tour and then we finished and left. So it was like the tour kind of still went on. So there was a lot of things that, that happened. You know, I, I definitely missed touring. And when I knew we were coming back again this year, it was it was exciting. But I think for me, in a, in a lot of ways, 
it might have been a bit of a rest that after 35 years i might have needed too so yeah i feel like a lot of people kind of felt that way too did you feel the same way al did you have the same kind of experience well yeah you, you know listen i i don't want to make light of a horrible 22 months i mean there's so many people out there who suffer such tragic loss and sure you know uh you know being sick family members dying financial problems i mean my biggest headache was that i didn't go to work last year you know right so I, 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 really, I, I have zero to complain about. I'm grateful that uh, we're moving in the right direction with this whole thing. I'm grateful that live music is back in, yeah. in a, a different way, but albeit I'll take it. You know, and I'd come out here wearing a hazmat suit to do my job. You know, but yeah. it's just like, I love what <laughs> like Chris and I have been part of for well over 25, 26 years now. Right. Uh, we did a bunch of shows. I look out in the arena, I see a bunch of familiar faces. I see some new faces. I got a Les Paul wrapped around my neck. Life is good. Nice. Always, man. I'm going to preface everything with love, thoughts, and prayers to anybody who's going through any hardship yeah. right now. You know, my problems are nothing compared to what the rest of the planet's going through. So, again, to be talking to you, to be talking about a great tour, what great careers Chris and I both have collectively and individually, we're all good today. Yeah, man. No, I hear you. I hear you. I feel like, and I and I agree with Chris too. Like it was kind of like a reset for a lot of people, you know, yeah, for yeah. a certain extent too. I mean, there was a, definitely a lot of horrible shit that happened. There was a lot of you know, uh, political strife, all that other stuff. But I think we all kind of got a sense of who we were a little bit better too. Just well, I take care. Of, I take care of my mom, and my house was built in the early '60s, so I had a lot of time to realize just how much I never got done on my home too. So <laughs> I was I was working constantly on music and art and everything, and, and like Al said, not making any kind of light of the situation because I lost you know a lot of friends too. But I I, I spent a lot of time getting prepared for you know i was like wow i never had this done and I never, and then when storms and things hit as it was going i was more I, I took care of some things that that i really not that i didn't know were problems but it was i was home to see them because yeah. when you tour a lot of times when things go wrong you're not there so right. it was a full year of me getting to see each season and all the different things so it helped it helped me with that so i was i was able to focus on that and get ready to go back in a healthy kind of way how often are you guys, would you say you guys are actually on the road at this point? Well, we started rehearsing, what was it? Uh, late October, early November, right, Chris? Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, we hit the Mid-America Center, scratch our heads, how can musically we make it a whole lot better? Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, 2019, we're always trying to push the bar. You know, Paul O'Neill always said every year we want it to be bigger and better, musically right. uh, deeper. We're going to bring out some different songs from our catalog. Uh, you know, we all collectively kind of scratched our heads and said, okay, how can we take these couple songs, mush them together, you know, really bring it to life in a different way, playing mm -hmm. songs we've never played live that are very poignant. Um, I, I think to, you know, again, the couple years that we've all shared. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun rehearsing because the East Coast band, what's known as the East Coast band, is on one side of the, the arena. Right. We're on the opposite side. And, like, when they're on the big stage, we're in kind of like a little, um, what would you call, locker room. We're doing like our nuts and bolts housekeeping and they're working on the production and where to stand and all that stuff. And then when they go back in the locker room to, to tighten up their stuff, I'm on the opposite end of the arena on the biggest stage. It's like a bizarre mirror image, you know, <laughs> and you gotta understand brother, it's grown up since uh, the first show we did in 99, we had a 24 foot box truck, two buses and a fog machine. And we thought wow. it then, you know? <laughs> dude, it, you know, last year when I left Chicago at the Allstate Arena, uh, excuse me, in 2019, the last show, mm -hmm. uh, 21 tractor trailers and 12 buses in the park alive. Holy you know, shit, this man. This thing's grown up like one of your kids grew up and just yeah. like, exceeded both mine and Chris's wildest expectations. And all yeah. I ever wanted was to put on the biggest rock and roll show on God's earth. And, you know, I'm just had, uh, glad to have a swing at the plate again this year to do that. Yeah, can you can you pinpoint a moment in in time like in in the through the whole process where you were like, "This is holy shit! This got huge." Did it kind of sneak up on you? I think for me, and I I kind of upset Paul with it because we were playing Madison Square Garden, and I I told him I needed to go home because I I was living in an apartment in Astoria Queens at the time, okay. and he was like, "Well, if you go home, you better take a car service. I don't <clears> want you in taxis. I don't want you on a." A subway because he didn't want anything to happen to me on the day we're playing Madison Square Garden. And right. of course, I am like the kid you know, who says, don't press this button. I have to hit the button. So I took the end train back to the garden just so I could take the subway to play Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I came out of the, the subway tunnel and I looked mm -hmm. up and I saw the sign outside of the garden, which I'd been seeing concerts at since I was a you know 13. And wow. it said tonight sold out Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And I was like, 
wow. <laughs> that was, I think, the for me, that was the wow moment. It was like, okay, well, Paul was right. Because when we first did this record, Paul, this was his vision, what was going to happen with this. And he, he's, he was so amazing. I've never seen anybody that can make things happen the way Paul did. And we were talking about something one day. I was on the phone to him. And his conversation is like, now when TSO headlines arenas, we hadn't even released the record yet. And he's telling yeah. me when TSO headlines arenas. And that's just the focus. Of, and nobody else I know in my life had the ability to be that focused on something and always make it happen. And, and he was so incredible at that. It's just, it was such yeah, a great. special human being. And, and, you know, we just watched, we got to watch him make it happen. And we were all blessed to be, and we're still blessed to be a part of it, but it's just, a, it's an amazing thing. And like Al said, it just keeps getting bigger in the shows. I go there and, and I watch him the last day before we leave. And that's my TSO concert every year. I get, and then I get to see what it is people are going to be seeing when they watch me because I don't see it from the stage. So yeah. I get to technically... No, yeah, Chris just hit upon a couple of good things. So again, this wasn't, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to use the word normal, but that's not, the, uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. Okay, so you said, you know, like, when did you have that oh, wow moment, right? Yeah. Okay, so every year has been a different oh, wow moment. If you start off in night, late winter 95, uh, when Chris Steve Sarajevo hit the radio, it became the number one requested song in America overnight. Yeah. That was an oh, shit moment. Right. Right. I was like, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> and then 96, Paul said, we're going to record uh, Chris and Steve and other stories. Mm -hmm. Winter 96 goes double platinum. Boom. Wow. All right. A couple yeah. years later, we do the Christmas Attic album. Goes platinum. I, you know, Chris and I felt like we were in the Steely Dan of Christmas music. We There's no touring. We were just in the studio banging out yeah. writers. This is awesome, dude. <laughs> you know, 99, we did our first bunch of shows, sold out the Tower Theater opening night, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've told the story a thousand times. And this is like when, when you're playing in TSO and you're at a TSO show, this is what Chris and I see from our vantage point. In front of me was this like 65, 70-year-old couple, like grandparents, whatever. And right. you know those like crocheted reindeer sweaters that people wear oh, around yeah, the holidays? Yeah. Right. Yep. Gorgeous old couple. The right next to them was a dude in a Slayer hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> no bueno. That's so great. You know, that yeah. was head down, play the show, a bunch of Hail Marys. Let's get through this, you know? <laughs> and after that, we had to cut it into two bands. Wow. It was one of those wow moments. Then we started doing matinee shows where it wasn't enough to do one sold out arena a day. We had to do two sold out shows in one day. Holy shit. You know, and back in the day, you know, they, they said, you want to do um, a show at three o'clock. I'm not even hung over by three o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> this is like literally my brother having a child mm -hmm. that is just, it's like an AP every course. It's graduating three years early from high school. It got a full scholarship to Harvard. It became like, like the, the president of the United States. I just every day, every year I go, oh my God. You right. know, every so often, Chris and I will look over our shoulder and kind of smile and go, this has been a great run. But the trajectory keeps going. Paul yeah. wanted this to live forever. That, that was what he said for years. Am I right, Chris? Oh, absolutely. He wanted this to live past all of us. And, you know, I see like babies and, and, and like, you know, toddlers and you know young teens in the audience, like, you know, just loving what Paul created and his family has perpetuated. And maybe, just maybe, you know, this will live long past all of us. And that's the definition oh, of great yeah. art. And that's all Paul ever wanted to make. I remember, I mean, man, I remember when I was a kid, my family having the cassette tapes and then CDs, and then now it's on my, you know, iPhone, basically all your music and stuff. Like, it's it's just a part of Christmas. It's just a part of the whole experience. Did you have, like, uh, how quickly did it go from you were making CDs and stuff like that and doing live stuff to now you're in movies, TV, you know, that kind of stuff? Did that happen kind of quickly, too? Well, I mean, on and off yeah. things, different things were happening. We'd be sitting somewhere and all of a sudden you'd watch a commercial come on TV and it, we were in the commercial. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> or you, you couldn't walk through a, a mall, you know, with, without hearing it somewhere. It was like <laughs> if you'd go in, Christmas Cannon would be in Macy's and you'd, you'd walk in there. And when you first started, you if you were flying somewhere, you'd get on people like, y'all on a band? Mm -hmm. And you tell them, and maybe one out of 20 people would go, oh, I think I heard you. And now it's like one out of 20 people might not know who you are. It's like everybody right. seems to know. So we went, we just watched it all go. I mean, when the Wizards and Winter song came out and that guy was one of the first people to program a house's Christmas lights to Christmas music, 
it was that. And then it just every news channel, you'd be sitting in a hotel on your day off, be like, no matter where you were, they were showing this guy's house and that song. It would just little by little things like that stumbled. And you're watching NFL. And you'd hear, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's like, this is crazy. I, mean, I just got up at noon. I'm in the tour bus. So I'm getting ready to get ready for the matinee. And, and Fox, I'm watching what little football I can. And your song is there with Terry Bradshaw. And you're like, this is really pretty crazy. And it, things, it happened a lot like that where you weren't, you didn't know or you didn't expect it. I remember <clears throat> early on when this thing really started kicking what in. He said? I was doing a lot of the press and I'd be on the phone uh, doing radio. And people would look at me and go, Wow, you know, your English is pretty good. <laughs> wow. Well, you're from Siberia, right? Yeah, Siberia, Brooklyn. Stop it. <laughs> really, nobody knew what it was. And it would usually be, knew, like Chris you know, said, everybody knew what it was. You know, it's crazy, dude. Every time, like Chris said, you put on uh, any uh, any channel. We on the thought y'all. Elon what? Musk programmed his car into Wizards of Winter. <laughs> That brother owes me a car. Yeah, seriously. Um, Listen, if he programs like his, his spaceship, I'll be really happy. <laughs> he's getting those satellites in space on Mars or wherever he's going. Oh man, you don't want to go to Mars. He's not. He's not planning on bringing anybody back alive from Mars. Trust me. When you were you got when you guys were younger and you were kind of getting into music, was what was your first instrument that you picked up? Like, what was the first thing that got you to where you are today? Well, for me, it was mm -hmm. very simple. 1964, Ed Sullivan show, the Beatles came on. Mm. Done. Yeah. And if you talk to anybody my age or a little bit older, 90% of us will say the same thing. I've heard Joe Wall say it. Uh, you know, I've heard anybody from, like, you know, who is old enough to watch that and be completely captivated by what those four lads from Liverpool did. They changed the world. Right. But um, I was in my feety pajamas, two years old. Uh, my dad, uh, granddaddy had a, a guitar over in the corner of the house, and I was watching Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo, and I started strumming the guitar. And much nice. to my parents' chagrin, it never left the inner part of my soul and my heart. I, I was on a trajectory with whether I ever made a dime or had any success as a musician, I had a love affair with that thing from the jump, and I've never let go of that. It's pretty much the same thing. I mean, I would sit there listening to the Beatles music, and I would always tend to go towards the more heavy songs and then one year my neighbor bought me the wings over america record for christmas and that mm -hmm. was really like my first uh, like where I, record where i heard like heavy things and all kinds of music and then i think the following year i'd gotten kiss alive i mean i i sang help at five for show and tell in school so it's, wow. it's probably the only thing i ever thought i wanted to do and i'm lucky that it happened because i planned on nothing else happening in my life so if i didn't do what i was doing i'd, I'd probably be waiting to clean this hotel room tomorrow you know and i or whoever was in it checked out so it's like i was very lucky that i put all my eggs in that basket i started playing the drums my brother played the drums my family didn't have a lot of money so mm -hmm. I had to get the drum pads because they were the cheapest. But I, the drummers hate me when they say this. I wanted to write music, not play drums. <laughs> and they were oh, like, wow. ah, yeah. but I, I wanted the guitar and my family do whatever it could to get me a guitar. And I just started playing. And I mean, me, I was fortunate enough to start working with Paul when I was 17 years old. And it's kind of funny because I met Al, I think, for the first time when I was 16. And in the New York scene, Al was like the first one of us in our around our generation that that quote unquote made it because when Al got into Cooper, we were all like, wow, Al Petrelli got the Alice Cooper gig. So he was the first one to really get out into the real world amongst the people I knew in our club scene that weren't like the older bands at the time, which were the Twisted Sisters and some other ones. But sure. And then all of a sudden in 95, me and Al were in the same band together and it hasn't stopped since then. So it just kind of it happened. We both, you know, I always believe that, you know, there's a lot of luck and timing and you get in the right place at the right time. You got to bust your butt to get there. But we had a lot of everything just kind of interlocked and it, it all came around the same thing. And for me, like I said, I started working with Paul when I was 17 and I really hadn't left since then. So I found a really good home at a very young age in this business. And he protected us. And when we went on the road with Sabotage or something, you know, there are situations when you didn't always make money. But Paul yeah. always made sure that none of us were ever stranded. Nothing ever went wrong. Like he, he's like, I will take care of anything that goes wrong. And that, 
it's difficult in this business because most bands, you know, will have opportunities where they get left on their own. And we were blessed with somebody like Paul that made sure that we, he always had our back, you know, and that's something that um, I think led me towards like, well, I'm going to be a, a soldier in this guy's army till, till the last day I play guitar. And that's where yeah. I've been. And when you have somebody like that who does have your back, it allows you to be full on creative. You don't have to worry about like where you're going to be, where you're going to go next. There's somebody else that has it so you can concentrate on your art. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Paul, was, Paul was a really interesting guy, like Chris was just saying. And life is a really interesting journey. Mm -hmm. So Chris has been working for Paul forever. I randomly met Paul in 1985. Like, you know, I, I was working with this one artist who was managed by the management company that Paul was working for. And we accidentally met one day and he's like, man, I can't believe you guys ended up you know, playing um, his band, whatever it was. But if I didn't do that one thing in my life, I wouldn't have met Paul back then. Right. right. And in 85, he said, one of these days we're going to work together, you know. And, you know, like everybody in New York City says, that, ah, we're going to get together, <laughs> you know, break bread, make some music. OK, well, Paul, you know, he didn't say anything he wasn't going to do or didn't mean. And you fast forward to 10 years that Chris is just talking about. It. He said, you know, we, we kept in touch over the years. Hey, hey, whatever. But he said, listen, why don't you come into the studio? I got this this idea I'm working on. I wouldn't mind you putting some ears on it. You yes. know, now, if I didn't meet him 10 years accidentally, maybe he wouldn't have called me that 10 years later. Chris and I wouldn't have been in the same room together, you know, with the Mountain King, Oliver, and Middleton, and Plate, and Zach, and, you know, at uh, Dave Whitman, all these people that were just kind of like accidentally, circuitously ended up at that one microcosm. And not to sound like really trippy, but it is really yeah. weird. Now, yeah. If you take one of those components out, we're not having this conversation tonight. Right. You follow me? Yeah, absolutely. So Paul kind of saw the big picture across the board, you know, as far as the talent he wanted to surround himself with, uh, the music that he was writing you know the vision of making a great art form that didn't exist before mm. you know and it's been really if you sit back and try to figure it all out you really can i mean a lot of it's chance a lot of it's luck and a lot of it was him seeing a lot of things that chris and i that's not what we do we play guitar yeah you know that's paul was paul dude in a lot of ways like you know i mean he was our big brother our best friend our boss our producer our mentor i'll miss him and i know i'm speaking for chris as well until i close my eyes for the last time but i can't help but smile and say you nailed it and yeah. all is good down here. You know, you rest easy. We got you right now. That's beautiful, man. I, I remember the very first time that Al showed up because he didn't really have like, Al had a different kind of, it wasn't even an audition. We were in the studio doing Dead Winter Dead and Paul was looking for, we were looking for the second guitar player to play with me in Sabotage. And I don't remember how it came about exactly, but we were like, Al Petrelli's coming to play and he just came in to play in the studio his basic quote-unquote if you want to even say audition was to show up and play and i'm sitting there in the studio lounge and i saw al and we started talking and he was like you want to get out of here for a minute I'm like why <laughs> we went down the road and al went and he got a shot and he's like, I got to take the edge off. And I'm looking at him, I'm going, this is awesome. I'm like, I'm going to love this kind of band. And we went up there, and he had a Les Paul. And I remember everything. He had his Les Paul, and he had a Morley Wawa pedal. Mm -hmm. And he goes in his control room and plugs in I was probably wearing that the same outfit I'm wearing right now. You know? And it was one of the mind-blowing guitar, mind guitar things I'd ever seen in my life. I got mm -hmm. to watch. And listen, like, Chris is like one of my hell? favorite guitar players ever. He crushes it. Together, we were able to help the sound. You see, it's different playing guitar with uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra than it's playing with a different, like, a, 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 you normal. I hate right. to say the word normal again, but you traditional mm -hmm. rock band. Yeah. Paul writes these incredible stories. Our job becomes to help create the underscoring of them. You follow mm -hmm. me? Yeah. So it's not gratuitous shredding. It's not... Um, traditional rock and roll but there's a lot of orchestration there's a lot of keyboards there's a lot of string instruments a lot of brass instruments the way that we have to approach playing the guitar in this ensemble is completely different because it's like traditional metal or rock guitar rhythm parts don't work right you know solos aren't really just solos it's got to be a continuation of the thought that the singer was expressing as the character that paul created right you know so it really is you know a lot of people listen to and go you know that's awesome but i don't really think they understand the creation of it like you know it's a really different thing and if chris and i we both came from such uh, different backgrounds that we kind of, you know, fill in the spaces together as yeah. everybody else in the organization. So, if, you know, if, if I'm having trouble with uh, like 
a more aggressive part, he's got it covered. Uh, if Paul's looking for just some subtle little kind of nuance to, to like move the song along, I got it covered. That's, you know, Keith Richards said a long time ago in an interview that, you know, him and Ronnie Wood are like really good guitar players mm-hmm. individually, but together they're unstoppable. You know, yeah, that's yeah. what we, you know, were a part of going back to 95 because it was for the bigger picture, the song and the story. Every one of Paul's records had a story to it. So we just became almost like the John Williams or the Hans Zimmers of guitar player. Yeah. Just coming up with cool parts. Just like how Mutt Lang used to do with Def Leppard and all those incredible records. Right. You know, underscoring themes, parts, movement. Not you don't really notice them unless they're not there. And then something about the song isn't really as good anymore. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, no. Did you guys feel any kind of uh intimidation coming in? Like the transition between like what you what you just said from like a traditional rock band to like more storytelling and and being more involved in the process? Or were you just super excited to do it? I think it was more like what, what are people going to think when they see me in a tuxedo? <laughs> we, we all looked at all the sabotaging. We looked at each other like, what are we about to do? And we were on this stage, and, and that was at the time when we had a lot of dry ice, and there was no we're in a theater, and everybody's in the front row, which is literally right. And you're watching this dry ice roll into this 85-year-old lady. You're like, oh, my God, Grandma, I'm sorry. And you're like, you don't know what to do. But it was Chris mentioned, I was playing with Alice Cooper back in 80, yeah. 89, 90, I think, give or take, mm-hmm. right? So that was my real first introduction to theatrical presentation of rock and roll. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I must have been in like junior high. And what we heard about is this dude named Alice, first of all, which was weird. Nice. You know, <laughs> at you know, a show where I grew up on Long Island, Nassau Coliseum, you know, he, he put his head in the guillotine, he chopped his head off. And the next year he hung himself. And, right. you know, this was like the Antichrist to my parents. So I definitely wanted more of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but when I got to be his MD years ago, I watched the man like put the straight jacket on and become Dwight Fry in the Ballad of Dwight Fry or right. I Love the Dead and all these things. So I was like, this is just crazy. He was no longer Alice. He became the character that he was portraying. So I had a, right. third, a front row seat at one of the pioneers of doing that, mm-hmm. you know? So then uh, you move forward. And when Paul was writing um, the earlier Sabotage records, and he was collaborating with John Oliva, you know, he was writing rock operas in tradition of like, you know, what, what uh, the who did with Tommy, what Andrew Lloyd Webber did, especially, excuse me, with Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Uh, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall, you know, then you fast forward, you know, Queensryche, you know, a lot of these bands were writing rock operas. You got to understand, growing up in the 60s, most of the music that was on the radio or on TV was like those uh, broad, um, the show tunes. Yeah. You know, like West Side Story, uh, uh, The King and I, South Pacific, Jesus Christ Superstar, I guess, and The Sound of Music. So all the songs individually were amazing, but when you plug them all back into each other, the, the whole story was really mesmerizing. Yeah. So I kind of had an okay background on that. Um, so when Paul would like explain the stories to us before we ever went in the studio, you kind of get into his head, get into the mindset of like, how am I going to bring this character to life? What can I do with soundtrack? Again, just like if you're scoring a film. Sure. Sometimes it would be with a guitar in my lap. Sometimes it would be with a mandolin. Uh, a pedal steel sometimes uh, you know i'd sit behind a keyboard you know if paul wanted a real barroom kind of thing i'd get behind a hammond and bring that to life you know so Mm -hmm. all of us were responsible for adding our little coloration to really make the story you know come to life musically and then when you factor in his lyrics and uh, the way that he would produce vocals man that's really an incredible artist paul just he had he had a vision in his mind for for every for every part of the record and um It'd be interesting to watch him in the studio because Paul would have New York Times about five different books, and he'd have his notepad, and he'd have a like steak and a spoon and a knife and something, and he'd be eating and talking and dealing with this and that, and playing a guitar part, and you would hit this tiniest little scratch. He'd be like, "Wait, stop." He's like, you got to get your hand and put it in some warm water. If you put your hand in this warm water, it'll stop that scratching. I'm like, how did you notice that in the middle of talking about the Russian Revolution, checking out the stock market, eating a steak? Like, where did that come? You know, and he, you'd think that you were going to get through, but he was just constantly on every little detail, and it was it was really special to watch it happen. It was it was funny in a way because it was so over the top, but it was all all. You'd have a right. giant two-liter bottle of soda that he would crunch to hold up because he didn't want to pour a, a cup onto the board and kill a $2 million sound studio board. But then he would spill it all over himself, and he'd be like, all right, well, you didn't you didn't ruin the board, but you just spilled soda on yourself. <laughs> he was right. so lovable and so just Paul. 
It was so it, different. It, I remember the guys. first time I, was, I thought I was on recording rhythms for a song once. And mm -hmm. I did these rhythms. I thought I was finished. So Paul goes, you're not done yet. I'm like, why? He goes, did you do the clean telly? I'm like, what do you mean? And I never heard this concept before. He had you play a completely clean Telecaster track just for the noise of the pick hitting the strings in every song that you did. And he wow. goes, I don't know if I'm going to need it, but I'm going to have it. And you would do that, and he just would bring out the little the picking. And it was the first I ever realized that when I was done, I wasn't done. <laughs> it was <laughs> the introduction to that. It was like, you're never finished. Oh, well, there was a lot. Paul, records were never right? done with Paul until they were in the store. <laughs> yeah. He would pay attention to details that I didn't even know existed. Wow. You know? I mean, I'd play a solo, and he's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's try to beat it. And I would I'd spend like three days trying to beat the solo, playing the exact same notes. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, but did you hear the one thing you did on that one note? I'm like, no, I can't hear anything anymore. <laughs> you know? And you learn to trust him blindly because his ears were that good to where like subtlety and nuance became the the epicenter of what he considered technique. Didn't help matter how many notes you played. It, what mattered is how much of your life did you put inside of each one of those notes? Wow. You follow me? And yeah. There was one time where I was in the studio and I quit smoking for about a year. And he had me doing some of my blues soul. And he's like, this is terrible. And he goes, because what he's told you, there's no nicotine left in your playing. Like that ballroom kind of like snotty 70s, Leslie right. West, Johnny Winter kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I will buy you new lungs. Just please start smoking. <laughs> oh, my God. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> I love him to death. I miss him so much, dude. But listen, it's on record and he created the And we were lucky that he wore the singers because the singers, the, the singers, he really... He really got on every single word the way he wanted the singer yeah. to sing it. And I would remember just watching him with John Oliva. John would sing a line ten times, and John would be at the point where he couldn't tell the difference between the way Paul wanted and did it. And with John and Paul, it always worked out in some kind of a way where they'd leave the studio, they'd come back in, and I'd be like, how much do you have to give them this time? And Oliva would have like $200 more in his pocket, and he would get the extra couple vocal tracks before he ran back home to get to the bar. It's like, it's so funny. Listen, Paul had, when Paul developed tunnel vision on and how his it's vision exactly song was, no change in it. It seems like when you're doing it live, obviously, it's just this flawless, effortless machine that you guys are going through. But are there have there been times like during a live performance where something happens that you guys have to quickly adapt or like change stuff up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is that like? Do you guys have I'll a, a... go first on this one. This, this sure. is like my best story ever. Okay. Yeah. Jumping like a 25-year-old. In midair, I realized I'm 45. <laughs> and I snapped my ACL and broke my leg in the middle Holy of a guitar shit. solo. And didn't drop a note playing. Oh, my God, dude. Oh, yeah, dude. And I remember Paul was at opening night with me that night. He was at the front of the house. And I just saw his head kind of go like this. Like, like, like when your dog's confused. <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, I was having a real introspective moment because I immediately was holding this one note and mm -hmm. I sat down. I was like, oh, man, that hurt. Oh, I just thought, like, you know, I landed wrong. Oh, that was a stupid thing to do. Right? And I stood up and my leg kind of wasn't connected anymore because the ACL was blown up. Holy shit. Boom, face plant on the stage in the dark. It dragged me off, put me on a bar stool. And now, like, reality's kicking in because my leg is swelling up like a watermelon. Right. And they're just like, okay, you go here, you go here, you do this, and just somebody plays something, keep going, keep going, keep going, because why? The show's more important. In here fell on the ground the other day. I had no sound. So I'm listening <laughs> to the PA running around the stage trying to hear the house because I had no sound. And there's counts where we're like getting counts in our ears. And it's Al's voice too. One, two, three. There's no Al. And I'm standing up there going, what do I do? And I'm having to like make sure I play it in time. So I just went to the front of the stage and I looked back at everybody and I was like, pray to God. And <laughs> I hit the counts without any in-ears in my ear because my in-ear pack was on the other side of the stage on the ground. But it's <laughs> things like that, you know, you have to be ready for. Oh, we yeah. rehearse so much that muscle memory will kick in even when you get injured. Like Chris wow. is saying, even when your in-ears fall out. Some nights, like, it's so loud in the in-ears, and it, there's so much information going through that I actually can't hear anything anymore. 
Wow. You know, just a couple seconds where I looked down at the guitar. I was like, well, I'm on the fifth fret. This should be the right chord. <laughs> <laughs> you know, until I have a chance to turn my back, <laughs> back down and kind of give my ears a little bit of a break just to decompress so I can, again, like hear where my pitch is. Yeah. So our job is to rehearse so much that even when something goes wrong, the audience will never know it went wrong because everybody deserves a perfect first show. We had our first show in Council Bluffs. Okay. When mm. I get um, to wherever, uh, let's say uh, Spokane next week. It might be my 10th show, but it's going to be Spokane's first show. Right. And they deserve the energy and the excitement and the enthusiasm and the uh, the, the, the newness of a first show and all that mm. goes into that. You know, never once will Chris and I go on stage after doing 30, 40 shows. We're like, oh, God, we live for this stuff. And it's our job to make sure that the band is spot on every show. Yeah. Because you know, I don't want anybody walking out of the arena saying, you know, man, they weren't that good this year. That would break my heart. Yeah. You know, not while I'm still breathing. It's not going to happen. So, yeah, stuff happens all the time. The audience will never know it, I promise you. That's still blowing my mind that you broke your leg on stage and just kept well, going. Yeah, yeah. I'd and be now done. people say, hey, I'd good luck, out. break a leg. I'm like, no. <laughs> That's right. Tom said it before Don't you guys that. came on air and you were like. And he, didn't, he, didn't even get his, he didn't get it worked on until the tour was over. So he sat there in pain for the whole tour and. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And so he, he finished it, and we would see the YouTubes of him sitting in the chair, and um, he made it through the whole tour. And that's when he got the, the leg worked on, when we were done. Yeah, yeah, that hurt more than when I broke it. Yeah. Surgery and <laughs> rehab, no bueno. But anyway, that, that's, yeah. you know, that is what it is. But listen, this is what we do. This is what we love. I'll stop playing when I'm dead, yeah, and man. then it's over. Other than that, I'm having the time of my life out here. You guys have obviously been everywhere. Uh, is there a favorite place that you look forward to going back to every year? I think Omaha for me. Oh, you know what? That Omaha. really depends because, yeah, I mean that's that that's so you look you look forward to seeing everybody and getting going. I mean that's where I see the show for the first time. I can yeah. get the lighting designs in my emails and look at them. I don't want to see them. I want to watch the erector set. For me, that's what I love watching the crew come in and work and. And, you know, the different cities, every city has a personality, so it's hard to pick any one of them. You know, you, you just we, – we, we just hope that uh, everybody gets to the to and from the show safe. So we – you know, I always hope for nice weather so that the fans don't, you know, have trouble driving and, and this and that. I mean, that's more where your concerns are when it comes down to that. But, you know, every place you go has a personality. So – but the, in the beginning, yeah. like Al said, the Nebraska – you know, Omaha, we're actually in Iowa, we're rehearsing. That's where you, you look forward to going because that's where it's like the first day at school. You know, <laughs> the kids yeah. get together and we start, we haven't seen each other in a year. And Al will be like, Look at this telly I just got. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, I'll show and see your telly and I'll show you this SG. We're like, Be like, it's not new pairs of jeans, it's a different <laughs> guitar. It's kind of like that. I got to yeah, ask that, you guys that's about a really fun a thing. Like Chris just nailed it. He's like, it's the first day back at school in like 10th grade, you know, seeing yeah. all your buddies. How was your summer? How was this? How let's get back to it. But I mean, like, you know, th there's venues all over the country. I mean, one of my favorites, I mean, they're all, I love them all, but historically one of my favorites that I get to go to is the one in Ontario. Cause it's on, you know, where, where Cal jam was when I was a kid. Right. You know, and I'll talk about that, you know, sometimes as I'm introducing the band, I'll say, you know, here on this hallowed ground at Calajam, and everybody in the 55 goes, what? I'm like, oh, man, I'm so old, dude. <laughs> you know, because as a kid, it was Aerosmith, it was Ted Nugent, it was hard, it was um, Frank Marino, Mahogany Rush, all that raceway out in the desert, and that's where we are, you know? Right. So we used to read about because you only had like you know Hit Parader and Kerrang magazine back in the seventies. That's the only way you heard anything about these shows. Yeah. And I remember like like standing in that spot going, "This is like really religious for me right now. It's kind of cool." Is there anybody that you guys would love to work with that you haven't gotten to yet? For me, I always wanted to play Melissa once with. You Greg know, there's... that's a great fucking song. Love that song. You know, it's soundtrack of my life, dude. You know. Um, yeah. I got to uh, sit with him for a while. Uh, a couple months before he passed, um, just a great guy. He, you know, he he paid me a compliment saying he loved the work that I've done. I was like, dude, you know, you're a big reason why I am why I am. Right. And you know, we did have a chance to ever sit down and play a song with him, but I got to hang with him for a minute, and that was kind of cool. We had a lot of really awesome special guests come in with TSO. If I said, oh, I, I'd love to work with Steven Tyler, all of a sudden one day, you know, Steven Tyler shows up in the sound check and you're like really mm. <laughs> it's like paul made so many of these things happen with us that you know i'm playing pinball wizard would rather adultery and it's and as a kid you just you know wanted to be able to go see a who concert not having him show up and you know play his music with you it, it's just been 
it's been crazy. I, I, I don't really look at things I would want to do. I've done more than I ever thought I could do. So for me to come up with a list of like, I'd love to do this. It's like, it's all mostly checked off. So it's like, I don't even know. I just take it as it comes now. And I, I just feel really happy to be able to keep doing it. We have a ton of viewers. One of them just said the Denver shows were incredible, Al. Oh, good. That 20 bucks I paid him went well. <laughs> yeah. Now, do listen. Denver has been an incredible home for us for years. Um, a lot of great friends over there. L listen, I, I, I'm glad that people are enjoying the shows because they have to notice the extra energy that's going on on stage and the excitement mm -hmm. and, and how grateful we are to be back doing what we love to do so much. Yeah. You know, like I, I would say, you know, every year I'll say um, as I'm closing out the show, all right, y'all see you in 363 days, you know. And the last time I left Denver in 19, that's what I said. You know, who would have thought that that would have been put on pause and we wouldn't have what we, not that we ever took it for granted, mm -hmm. you know, but I always figured, okay, if we do a good job, they invite us back. I'm golden to come through, you know, the Pepsi center every year. Like they just changed the name, but you know, cause what I do, I have a day off in Denver. I go shopping, you know, I know my way around. I got a lot of friends there. I go to the Pepsi center, blow it up twice, two sold out shows. It was awesome. And again, when you love something so much and it's taken away from you, when you mm -hmm. have it back in your hands, brother, you savor it. You love it that much more and you're that much more protective of it. Absolutely. So I think that the understanding, between the people on stage and the folks in the audience I refer to as my repeat offenders, the ones mm -hmm. who come back every year, you know, there was a yeah. certain look looking in each other's eyes saying, thank God we're back doing this. I miss you all, you know? Yeah, man. Somebody so had said... That, that's a uh, different part of rock and roll that I've never experienced and I'm grateful to have now. Another fan of yours said, love seeing Joan Jett and Paul Rogers with TSO yeah. as well. Yeah. That must have been fucking awesome. Well, listen, Bad Company was the soundtrack of my life. Yep. We had Joan Jett was at the, the when we played the Garden. We we did I Love Rock and Roll he with loves her. To say there, but I always felt I gotta be honest. I felt guilty. <laughs> I felt guilty about one thing with touring with TSO, and I gotta I gotta tell you what that is. Mm -hmm. TSO East always got to play Long Island, and Al has always been out on the TSO West one, and every time we go to Long Island. And I was like, I got family showing. I got, and I just, I always felt, you know, because I know, you know, that's where he grew up, and that was always like the guilty thing. I'm like, we're playing Nassau Coliseum, and Al's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I, like, I, I just, that was like a guilty thing where I wanted to be able to, like, can we get on a plane today and we'll switch, you know, and you can come play your yeah. home, your hometown, your own city. Yeah, have you, you know guys what, ever thought that, about doing that, it? That's, that's ah, that's sweet, dude. But, brother, the fact that the band is playing in my hometown venue, close enough, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm good with that. But that was one nice. situation about the East and West because there's, you know, yeah, there's just so things that, you know. Every time he starts playing the garden, I'm like this. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, love and respect. Yeah, but we get, you. Like, we get a lot of tour that place up. We're good. <laughs> you notice why I keep ducking off cameras? Because for some reason my phone's freaking out. So I got to put my, literally put my ear next to the thing to hear what y'all are saying. <laughs> Or invent doing, a question, I'll answer whatever I want. You're doing great, man. <laughs> you're doing, you guys are doing great. So we, uh, I gotta ask you both personally. Like, uh, um, previous to doing this, um, do you guys remember like your first paid gig, like something that, uh, like the first time you got actual like real money for doing what you love? Oh yeah, buddy. <laughs> All right. So, 1976. Mm -hmm. Whatever my high school or junior high band was at the time, got hired to play for the Marine Corps Rugby Dance. Wow. Okay. And they asked, can you play um, uh, Born to be Wild? And, you know, at 16 years old, I said, yeah, absolutely. Play Born to be Wild. And then they said, could you play it again? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we just played it. He's like, no, can you play it again? I, I mean, you got 30 jarheads, literally Marines. 75 right. brothers, but I think I played that song 18 times that night for 25 bucks. Holy shit. Wow. That's the customer's awesome. always right, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a buck 20 a time. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and they, they were like starting like a, like a, it was like a mini mosh pit with rugby players. I'm like, this is going to go wrong real quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's incredible. What's the roughest it ever got? One more time. I said, what's the roughest it ever got? At that show? Yeah. Well, no, I don't mean any show. Oh, gosh. I mean, there's some nights and some some um, 
like some of the outdoor concerts in Europe, uh, the festivals okay. back in the day that would get really squirrely in some countries. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, people getting trampled and, uh, oh, you know, I, I don't know. There, there were some bad shows where, yeah. where bad things happened and, you know, not on stage, but looking out into the audience, like people can get crazy. I mean, they get excited and caught up in the moment, and that's like a really exciting thing. But sometimes that can go. You put too many people in in, in an area with no kind of parameters. Back right. in the day, you used to get a little squirrely like that, you know. Yeah, it's weird, man. I feel like uh, you know that kind of stuff did happen back in the day, but you didn't really hear too much about it. And now anytime there's like a concert with like a famous. Yeah. There was no internet back then. You know, now everything's instant on your cell phone, you know? Yeah. So, you know, like bad things happen. Nobody really heard about it. You know, regionally or locally, you would hear about stuff. The advent of these things, you know, not only like, you know, there's good and bad technology. Like you hear about, you know, a couple of people getting injured at a concert, you know, now really like that's been going on for 40 years, dude. (laughs) You know, not that that's a good thing, but you're only hearing about it now. Yeah. You know, the other thing with these things is it made us play better as musicians because there's no such thing as having a bad night ever again at a live rock show. Right. You know, I would have missed yeah. a note in 1988. Oops. Yeah. Now <laughs> it's on YouTube forever. That's when people get told to hang. Hey, he stinks. You know, like, really? Oh, my God. They did it to fucking McCartney the other night when he was at the. Uh... Oh, I was I was saying uh, they did it to McCartney the other night. Of all people, he was at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's singing with Dave Grohl, and you know he 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 like missed a note, and on the internet it was just like McCartney's lost it. He can't sing anymore. He's you know he's got to quit or whatever. And it's like, dude, it's fucking Paul McCartney. Dude, Relax. he wrote Eleanor Rigby. Shut up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Really? I'm like, and you know it's funny because I was watching that last night. I was sitting here on the bus, and I clicked it on. Yeah, and it just happened to come on with Carol King doing uh, mm. "You Got a Friend." Now, the yes. Tapestry album, nineteen seventy-one. I was like ten years old, or whatever I was back then, you know. Right. And that is like literally, like uh, again, part of the soundtrack of my life. And I'm watching her, and Carol's got to be in her late seventies now, and you know, just a little frail. But I actually kind of got a little bit emotional watching her sing it because the woman is still singing that song that meant so much to me fifty years ago. Yeah. You know, and how dare anybody talk about Sir Paul? You right, know? Yeah. I mean, we've all been a little kind of like a little too um, judgmental, like somebody hits the wrong note or whatever. Yeah. This is live music. And who, and who are you to say anything about Paul McCartney right. or any of these people that have been with us for 50 years? Yep, I agree, yeah. man. It's fucking wild that anybody has the audacity to do that kind of shit, especially when audacity. you know that they haven't doing anything. You're like, especially you're working at a fucking Jiffy Lube. With these younger people, not all of them, but like mm-hmm. auto-tune has become like like, like yeah. their version of my reverb when I was a kid. Right, right. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember seeing, uh, it was it was like years, in, it was years ago, but they were doing, I think uh, they were celebrating McCartney and Ringo at the um, uh, VMAs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And every artist before them was coming up and they had like, you know, giant fucking trapeze acts and flames and auto-tune and all this other shit. And then Ringo and Paul just walk out on stage and they're literally just singing these awesome songs and the crowd goes wild. I'm like, no theatrics, you know, no, uh, <laughs> there's no need for any of that stuff. It's just pure talent. And it's amazing. No, brother, he helped us an acoustic guitar in his lap and he goes, yesterday, you're done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know, you know? It, it's incredible. I mean, did you watch? Did you watch the McCartney three two uh, three two yes. one documentary? Absolutely, so yes. fucking good, dude. The question of all questions that Rick Rubin asked him was like, mm. "I just these songs are so memorable. I, I how did you write them to be so memorable?" He goes, "I had to remember them." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that was amazing. If it were only that simple, you know. But right. listen, that's you know, going back to the front of our conversation. You know, if you put on a particular um, Beatles song, if you put, put on a particular Carol King song, uh, every time I hear "This Christmas" by Donny Hathaway or yeah. whatever it is, or, or uh, something that um, Gladys Knight would sing, is again, it takes me somewhere when I was little. Right? Yeah, same. You know, yeah. It takes me someplace. That's what Paul created. That's what the O'Neill family is kind of perpetuating. The fact that you know we're talking about something that's twenty-five years old this year. Right. And it's still relevant and it's still important, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that I'm still part of it, you know, I'm proud of that. And, and I just wanted to grow up. I wanted to become a music form like all the greats that we talked about, you know, right. never putting yeah. us in the categories of the Beatles or Carol King or, or any of that. But just if people celebrate this work for years to come, then my job here on Earth is done and I'm good. Oh, yeah, they absolutely will be. I mean, they're already doing it now. It's everywhere. I can't I mean, uh, that's that's the most amazing thing about this kind of stuff is how quickly it blew up and how amazing you guys are, how quickly you all put it together. 
um, and you're making stuff that lasts. And that I feel like is something that every artist wants and you guys have already achieved. Yeah, you don't realize it when you're young. It's when you get older that you live for longevity. Yeah. You know, and I appreciate you saying that, man, because, I, you know, I can tell it's coming from your heart. And, and again, it's something that, like, you know, my, my five-year-old daughter and my 36-year-old son, you know, mm -hmm. both enjoy. Yeah. You know, they yeah. come from different walks, different generations, different parts of my life, you know. Yeah. But when it comes time for daddy doing what daddy does, they all just enjoy it, you know. And, right. it's, and you know, kids, they're like, oh, this is so lame. Daddy, you're so old, <laughs> you know, which is true about the old part. But they genuinely like it because it is cool. Yeah. You know? No, I hear you, man. Tom, do you want to run through more audience questions before I get to the last two questions? Yeah, I'd love to. We actually have somebody say, uh, what about the simultaneous stages in Germany? They thought that was amazing. And uh, we just have a lot of people tuning in from all over the country just saying how much they love you. Sacramento, Fresno, San Jose. <laughs> proud of the role that Cleveland played in the career of TSO. And... uh and Holly Harshman also says, "We'll see you again. We'll see you again in San Jose." Elaine says, "Hi." So, this one I can't is, wait, dude. Next week, right? This one yeah. is one of my favorite comments somebody made. I threw it up before, but somebody said, uh, "2010 was my." Oh wait, no, that's not it. But that's a nice one too, by the way. Sorry, guy. Uh, where's yes. the, where's 2010 the was my first show in, in Cincinnati East. Loved it. Took my ten-year-old daughter. 2011, Al brought the guys West guys to Cincinnati. Saw the BLN with both of you, which yeah. was great. This one, I think, is hilarious. I mean, it's just great. He's, this guy said, my first ever TSO show was in the wake of a blizzard here in Boston. My uncle's car got plowed in during the show. <laughs> oh, sorry, dude. <laughs> That's dedication, though, man. That's yeah, fucking man, awesome. Listen, you got to think about us touring in the winter. You know, that can get a little squirrely on all sides. You know, not sure. only for, you know, the folks in the audience, you know, always be careful. But, you know, I got like, you know. 20 tractor trails and a dozen buses going through the Rocky Mountains, you know. Wow. You know, drivers are coming out. Brother, we're putting chains on, boss. Hang in there. I'm like, okay, yeah. here we go. <laughs> you know, never missed the show. Never missed the downbeat. We showed up in Kansas City after a bad storm one night, and the production manager, J. Dot, comes up. He goes, hey, boss. I said, what's up, J. Dot? He said, we lost the truck last night. Mm -hmm. I was like, is that bad? He goes, well, it's kind of an important truck. I'm like, what was on it? He goes, the stage. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's true. He goes, I, don't worry about it. I got it. I'm like, what do you mean? You're going to just come up with like, you know, a 40 by 70 stage where? At Walmart? Right. Well, somehow they pulled the rabbit out of their hat. They found enough to put the stage in together. The show went off on the downbeat when it was supposed to at three o'clock in the afternoon, mind you. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. without all crew, you know, we can talk about guitars and, and, and all music and all that stuff a lot, but I will always tip my hat and take time <laughs> out to talk about how incredible our crew was, is because it's like uphill what weights on them running you know it's amazing what they could do and we i'd never be able to do my job without any of them you know so yeah. that's why we introduce them every night at every show because we're nothing without them and they love it as much as we do you know some of them with it as long as i have that's awesome dude uh can welcome back can anybody hear me now I've yes actually, this I've is yes. crystal clear phone. dude the I internet the internet's been overwhelmed by people streaming porn or something. I don't know what's going on. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't make it work. So I went to the phone, but I can't even see now because everybody's so tiny. Oh, uh, so no, you're my, coming in great. My nighttime readings went in. I see four blurry cubes. And I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I feel it's like I feel like I went to a bar and had 40 shots and I have no idea what anybody's saying just because everything sounded like a bunch of blah blah but anyway that's I'm perfect for i think you described tonight. the essence of dystopia tonight yeah yeah well there see i wanted to come in and make sure i, I seem real natural to everybody here <laughs> <laughs> lorena um, ribris is hanging in there chris huh lorena ribris is hanging in there chris we love uh, they love I you always, i always hang in there so <laughs> um, but I now, take... now i lost I, I have to put the phone up because i can't hear i have no way of hearing I well, lost I want to thank Al. you both. He gone? No, he's not. He's listening too. He's no, there. Listening he's closely. Oh, there he is. I yeah, he's listening again. too. He disappeared. Yeah. So, one more was there question. anything that I needed to answer? I'm going to put this here so you could tell me. Was there anything I missed? We have, I uh... Sorry, go ahead, John. Oh no, no, we have one more question. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, it okay. says, will will you tour again together like BKN? It was great seeing you guys together. So that's a great question. Will you guys be together again? And where could they catch you when you're both at the same at the same venue? Well, uh, I mean, hopefully we get to do like a Beethoven tour again. You know, uh, we've toured anytime it comes down to like a non-Christmas tour, like the spring tours and the summer tours in Europe. 
You know, yeah. it's, it's such a privilege to get back on the stage with Chris, Johnny Lee, and Jeff Plate because the four of us were there from the jump, you know? Mm -hmm. And that band has a particular vibe and chemistry to it. It's really awesome. At Christmas time, you know, we're going to be together for the three or four weeks in Omaha and council us rehearsing, and we'll part company because it just got too big. To, you know, it's a finite end to this thing on New Year's Eve, you know? Yeah. So in order to cover the territory, again, going back to, uh, when was it, 2001, when they cut, or 2000, excuse me, they cut it into two bands, unprecedented, never been done before, you know? Yeah. And Paul pulled another rabbit out of his hat that stuck. So I can't, you know, we did the stream last year where it was Chris, myself, um, Jeff, and Johnny, and it was awesome, just that, that core band that's been together since 95 playing together. Mm. If we ever tour the spring and the summer again, yeah, man, we'll be back. No, right now, the task at hand is to get through this tour and crush it. You know, one thing that this pandemic has taught, I think, all of us is stop worrying so much about tomorrow and start living in today because tomorrow became a big question mark. Absolutely, man. You know, and if you're anything like a control freak like I am, don't <laughs> once something's out of my control, man, I, I did not deal with it well. And I've learned to just, well, this one ain't up to me. You yeah, know, I'm going to make today the best one I could possibly make. And when I wake up tomorrow, God willing, then I'm gonna, you know, so I always say people say, how are you? Best day ever. Yep. Side of the dirt's awesome. Absolutely, dude. that's the truth. Yeah, what he yeah. said. I hope you guys enjoyed yourselves today because I really enjoyed our conversation today. I don't know yeah. what happened to Chris. This was fantastic. <laughs> you could just quote, I have... quote everything Al said and said Chris said exactly what Al said. <laughs> I have I have two more questions for you guys to answer individually. We ask every guest these questions with to close uh -huh. out the show. Uh, the first one is if you could go back in time and tell your younger self something that would help you today, what would it be? Wow. Um, I would tell my younger self, don't change a thing. Nice. Because if you change one thing, your life is completely different. Right. You know? I mean, Butterfly you know, effect. Uh, regret is a weird thing. If you regret something, that means you want to go back and fix it or redo it. And that might lead your life in a different trajectory. Mm -hmm. You know, things that you've done wrong. Well, yeah. You know, hurt people. You try not to through your life. You try to, you know, be stand up about a lot of things, but mistakes are made. But if you change one left turn to a right turn in the trajectory of your life, you have a completely different life. Right. Yeah. True, man. What about you, Chris? Well, I mean, it's really hard for me to say exactly what it would be. I mean, I left Sabotage basically for about a year, and it was to go work with my own brother on something. Now, to turn around and say, would I have done that differently? I went where my heart was telling me to go at the time, and I wound up you know exactly where it was home for me i mean so i don't i don't really think i would have changed anything i did what i what i thought i should have done you know there were times when i i think that quote unquote you know i i was sad about it because i i missed time with a good friend of mine that wound up passing away with chris oliva and, and about a, a you know about a year and a half of his life i i missed over that so i really don't know i mean other than that i think maybe i i would have realized just how easy it was to be a lead singer and probably would have pushed that because <laughs> a lot of people singers don't realize just sometimes how much easier their life is than everybody else <laughs> it's i think maybe that would have been it i was like man i don't know about that so right other than that you know what I, like i said before i mean anything that i wanted to do is pretty much in a lot of ways and this thing is, is happened you know you can you can nickel and dime little details of things that you would have done differently all day but you know you can also look at things that happen because you did things differently than that nickel and diming so you right. could sit there and go if i change this maybe you know this wouldn't have happened so it's, i think that's really a difficult thing to answer with that you know yeah. so i'll stick with the singer one i would have been a lead singer and, and wouldn't have had to you know carried anything to a club but a microphone <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, John, could I put one? Uh, only sure. because their fans are so ravenous. They love yeah, these yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I would love to questions. Get, yeah, I would love to get some of them in. Spencer, uh, 1697, asks, are you going to put the When the Crowds Are Gone on a TSO, TSO album anytime soon? You know, what, uh, you know there's talk about some of the early Sabbath stuff. Um, but again, over the last two years, what's been the main concern is just like getting kind of reorganized and getting back to whatever our sense of new normal is going to be and doing this. So. We'll resume conversations and get back into the studio next year. But again, like I said, you know, everybody kind of sit tight. Let's get through this together. You know, let's Absolutely. have a banging year. Uh, let's everybody stay healthy. Let's get through the holidays. Let's get into 2022. And then from there on, 
I'm up for anything. Music. Exactly Absolutely. what Al said. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were just two more statements that I think were great. So Trisha said, been a fan of TSO for 25 years. Thank you for sharing your amazing talent and bringing so much joy to so many people. Well, well you're so you welcome, know, darling. And thank you for help putting us on the map. I mean, you know, it's folks in the community who made this become what Paul always dreamed it would become. You know, great art is great art, but boy, did this catch on, you know? So yeah. to everybody listening, to everybody watching, to everybody who's been supporting us for like a quarter of a century, which sounds really weird for me to say, but, you know, that's kind of what it is, dude. Man, I am old. Damn. <laughs> exactly what Al said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, do we have any more uh, fan uh, questions or you want yeah, me to get to the last one? One more. When will Al ride out on one of the spatulas? Never. <laughs> and then, I told you I'm a control freak. So the and what's <laughs> happened in the past is I was on the fence. I may have like said, "Ah, oh, yeah, I'll go out there one day." Until like Janigley Middleton went out and got stuck. Wow. And like you know, it was at the end of the show, and we're all singing. I had the audience just like clearing out. You know, folks are sweeping up. But he's still up on the spatula. Hey, brother, get down! <laughs> so now, I'm going to stay on stage where, when, God forbid, something goes wrong, I can handle it. If I'm up in the air, not going to happen. Right. Oh, that's so fucking great, dude. Yeah, I, I was in the back of the arena on some giant pogo stick or something like that with a platform, and the thing didn't the thing didn't go back down. And I remember seeing everybody up on the stage. Thank you, good night. And I'm back there with a ladder and a bunch of roadies trying to get me, and crew guys trying to get me down off of this thing. And people are like going to their cars. I'm up there going, "Can you throw my freaking dinner up here?" You know, it's like I was like, you know. So I, I think I was, you know, in some ways I was kind of smart with that one. But, yeah, yeah. The band actually went through the final bow for real, and I was like still up there in the back waiting for some ladder, escape ladder. That's great, man. Wow. Oh God, that's hilarious. Um, all right, so last question is, um, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? Ooh, that's a good question. Ooh. Thank you. <laughs> wrong notes. <laughs> I had to stop playing wrong notes or I wouldn't be here. Now, I think that, um, I think it mostly focus and responsibility. I mean, you, you start doing what you're doing. And when you're younger, you kind of feel bulletproof sometimes, you know, and I think that whole mindset of you just going and not realizing that every action you do has a circumstance, you know, and I think that for me, it, it, it took time. I mean, you know, I, it takes you time, I could say, to grow up, but it takes time to, to realize that, you know, you everything you do can affect somebody else. And I think that is the thing to me is like when I realized that, you know, that that making actions kind of have that and, and especially when you're you're playing on stage and you're touring with a group of people this big i mean anything that you do personally affects hundreds of people and, and affects you know millions of fans and this and that so i think it was one of these things where i realized that you know i you know you have a a responsibility to focus on so it's like i think i just kind of tried to work harder on my actions i'm never perfect no i don't think anybody will ever be perfect some people will, will listen to that and say something i did last week they didn't like but i mean it's like like i'm focused on trying to make sure that i do the right things as much as i can i mean like i said no one's perfect but i think that's what i did great answer well, yeah, i think for me what had to end was um insecurity and um and uh worrying about uh acceptance by the masses mm. because uh i kind of you have to be kind of okay with yourself i when i was doing uh, one of the alice cooper records we were working on the hey stupid album right. and desmond child was producing it at the time uh, mm. in the demo stages and he and i kind of butted heads a little bit um and he cleared the studio one night and he looked at me and he goes listen this whole tough guy brooklyn bravado stuff ain't gonna work with me in the studio and i was kind of like, what are you talking about he goes you're an artist and you have to be Secure enough in yourself to become vulnerable at the drop of a dime to benefit the art form that you're trying to be part of. Wow. And I kind of, I didn't get it at first until I really thought about it. And you have to be very secure and very okay in your own skin to become vulnerable, albeit in the studio or on stage or whatever performance or whatever you're doing in your life. Yeah. And if you're worried about what everybody around you is thinking, it's almost crippling. 
You know, you can't be honest musically, or you can't be honest in whatever part of our life we've been talking about with me musically. You can't be honest with your instrument unless you're just okay with that and, and not worried about what the people are immediately going to think. Is this helping the art form? You know, one of the things that Paul told me, he goes, when you played the guitar solo on Old Holy Night on the record, you know, it's apparent that you had some really troubled years as a kid because you really don't like Christmas and it's haunting how you approach that thing. And I was only able to do that in the studio with Paul and our engineer, Dave Whitman, because it's a really sensitive moment. It's a, it's a really vulnerable moment. It's like, like if you listen to any good actor, if you listen to De Niro, Pacino, or anybody went to the Lee Strasberg Academy of Method acting, you got to tap into all of that pain and anger or jubilance and joy or whatever, depending right. on what kind of emotion you want to present. You yeah. got to be secure with that. And, and I think insecurity is the most crippling uh, thing that, that anybody can suffer from because all you would worry about is what everybody else is thinking as opposed to just being truthful and honest in your art. That makes any sense. Absolutely. It, it does, does because Al's, Al's answer was that much better than mine. So now my I got nothing. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, that's great. I want to thank you so, so much, both of you, for taking the time out to come on and to talk to us and stuff. It's been an absolute blast and a pleasure for me, and I, I can't wait to come see you both uh, when you're uh, in – well, I think you, so one of you is in Count Basie, and I don't know – I'm sorry, I don't know which one, but one of you is at the Count Basie coming up, right? Where is that? In New Jersey. <laughs> a Red Bank, New Jersey. That's him, no, no, you, no, that's no. you. Red Bank. In Jersey, the only place that I'm at in Jersey is uh, the Prudential Center. Oh, okay. Well, then I, fuck the Count Basie. Well, we'll see you at the Prudential Center. <laughs> We're at the <laughs> Prudential Center. The, <laughs> Which... It's the week before Christmas. There's two shows there. I want to say it's the 22nd, but I could be wrong of December. I think hmm. the 22nd is there, and the 23rd is DC. I could be wrong. Oh, but I, I did a lot of. Uh, for the, the tour before it started so i kind of knew what where i was going and now i forgot but i think it's yeah second is jersey fantastic All right, well brother sorry about my phone being squirrel but i enjoyed this time greatly much no it's great respect. stay safe for the holidays right hopefully i get to see y'all soon thanks man thank you too. you too thank Peace, you guys. both you yes thank you everybody. Everybody. so much he said exactly what al said <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much have a great night what Take al care, said man. thank you good night dystopia tonight